From Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal, and this is Next Round, a VinePair podcast conversation. We're bringing you these conversations between our regular podcast episodes in order to examine how we move forward as a drinks business during the COVID-19 crisis. Today, I'm talking with Bill Schufelt. He's the founder of Athletic Brewing in Stratford, Connecticut. Bill, thanks so much for your time. Zach, thank you so much for having us on. Really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. So let's start out with uh, the probably the most important thing here, which is, can you tell me a little bit about Athletic Brewing? And for those who are not familiar, which may be plenty of our listeners, you are a brewery that is devoted uh, exclusively to non-alcoholic beer. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the brewery and why that is the uh, path that you chose to walk as a brewery. For sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I know non-alcoholic beer. I mean, people don't think of that as exciting. It's never been exciting. Um there was really no innovation for three decades, uh, from 1990 to about 2017. Um, and it was a real pain point in my life. I was turning 30, getting healthier, about to get married, had a serious day job, was just starting to put better fuel into my body, organic and plant-based foods. And just kind of one thing inconsistent with everything else was kind of booze-drenched weeknights and weekends. Um, and I always been a craft beer lover. I went to college in Vermont um, and we had the closest brewery was Otter Creek a quarter mile away, but then we had five great breweries within about uh, 25 minutes or so. And so when I moved into the city after I loved craft beer and I would hunt around all the beer bars and like always seek out what's new. Um, And so it was a really tough spot where I was dialing back drinking, didn't want to really drink during weeknights and just going to good New York City restaurants and getting a water or Diet Coke with a meal or hanging out with friends on a Saturday and not being able to have craft beer was a really tough spot. So we wanted to fill that void and thought we could not only have a huge positive impact on people's health, but really increase inclusion in the beer industry and introduce a lot more people to craft beer. Um, we're not the prohibition parade or anything like that. We love craft beer, wine and spirits. And really just want to grow the beer community in a healthy and positive way. So that led us to Athletic Brewing. Um, The name Athletic isn't that we're all elite athletes or anything like that. Um, Athletic is just a positive word where non-alcoholic beer had never been something people were proud of and like didn't talk about the non-alcoholic beer they were drinking. They weren't excited about it. And We wanted to make an awesome beer framed in a positive conversation right from the start. And so that's why we call ourselves Athletic Brewing. Um, Yeah, and we, I mean, to differentiate a little further, I guess, we went right to the, like, the baseline that the processes being used couldn't make good non-alcoholic beer. And so we started from the ground up, home brewing on Gatorade jugs in an empty warehouse, and it's like a true craft beer story that started from the Gatorade jugs up. And that's kind of where we're at today. Cool. So I can certainly understand if you are not interested in sharing details, but but suffice to say that the process of making the beer is fundamentally different than what goes into most other commercially available non-alcoholic beers. Is that right? For sure. Um, so non-alcoholic beer is traditionally made by processes that have been around since the 60s and 70s, um, either vacuum distillation or reverse osmosis or varying different methods of burning off the alcohol or aggressively filtering it out. And we kind of started with the baseline that that doesn't like the ceiling is too low on those methods. And we wanted to start from scratch and brew super sessionable beer below 0.5%. So real craft beer that just happens to be non-alcoholic. And John and I, um, 
I teamed up with an incredible, highly awarded craft brewer who had only made alcoholic beer previously. Uh, John drove his family. So I quit my job in finance. John drove his country across the, uh, his family across the country to really homebrew in an empty warehouse with me for a year as we did hundreds of batches on a Gatorade jugs and um, really just changed small variables at a time. Um, the long and short of it is that our process is a combination of 12 to 15 changes from the actual brewing process and allows us to really control everything from mashing to fermentation to conditioning uh, with small changes along the way. And it seems like one of the one of the main differences is that you're able to offer a variety of different beers within the non-alcoholic portfolio, whereas I think most of us who are familiar with non-alcoholic beer, I'll say this, you know, from my own experience working in restaurants for a long time, you know, all the non-alcoholic beers sort of taste alike. You know, they're all kind of a lager-ish maybe, but but you don't find IPAs and other things like that that are non-alcoholic. So, so is it that, that those processes allow you to make a variety of different, like, as you said, craft beers, and then that just happen to be non-alcoholic? Is that, is that the best way to kind of sum it up? Yeah, I think it's twofold. Uh, all those brands on the market are generally from an era where taste preferences were largely different. Light, light macro beers ruled the day. And so that's what all the non-alcoholic beers from the 80s and 90s taste like um, or 70s. Um, but also, yeah, we with our process, we can unlock everything from we do single IPAs, double IPAs, West Coast, East Coast, Gozas, Fruited Gozas, uh, Stouts, like a whole portfolio of beers. I think we had 12 beers at Curbside Pickup last weekend. All right. And since you said Curbside Pickup, we're going to transition into the, uh, you know, the sort of uh, what how things are going right now. So so I have a, I have a couple of questions about what the COVID-19 crisis has kind of uh, done to your business. So let's start with maybe one of the one of the most interesting ones, which is to me, which is that because you're selling a non-alcoholic product, it's much easier for you to ship uh, the beer across the country. So for you guys, was that an immediate point where you recognize? I mean, it was probably already an advantage in terms of just getting the beer to customers wherever they are. But I would imagine that as people suddenly, you know, found the other avenues to beer, uh, no pun intended, drying up. Uh, talk a little bit maybe about the the sort of what what you can do online and and how maybe that's that's been for you guys over the last few months. Yeah, and right from the start online's been great where we can go direct to consumer to most states legally. Um and so we have a really big community stretched out all over the country. Um a lot of times that results in unrealistically high expectations where I mean at a lot of breweries our size people for a hot beer will line up outside and wait in line for it. um for ours, those sell out in 30 seconds sometimes online, and then people complain where it's 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 a high bar of expectations when you're shipping nationally um, from a small scale. But um, yeah, I mean, like everyone out there, COVID-19 definitely affected us, and it affects everyone in the in it affects everyone in all different phases of hospitality differently, obviously, and. Like we saw our taproom business immediately to zero. We shut that down. Uh, all our on-premise business where we had some incredible partners throughout our metro areas and backyard in Connecticut and on the on-premise and like all those obviously went right to zero and really hurt us and a lot of our distributor partners. And we put our heads together with our partners and our team and 
we have a lot of teammates who immediately we pulled off the road for their safety. And we kind of huddled up as a team and we're just super transparent. This is what we're facing. This is what the landscape looks like. How do we attack this current landscape? And uh, so probably 80% of our marketing last year had been on in-person sporting events and sampling and activation teams, which, I mean, our company is the activation team, but uh, still traveling for those events. Um, and so we immediately saw that a lot of that spend wasn't necessarily going to happen this year. And so we pivoted really hard into off-premise strategies, sampling strategies where we could, mailing strategies like postcards and different things like that, um, online digital spend. Um, we realized people had stopped at spending on billboards and got some incredible deals on stuff like that. And so we really tried to pivot hard, but also... I mean, the industry has gotten decimated on so many fronts. And so we tried to support our distribution partners where we could. Um, we did a major donation from our online sales to our on-premise partners. Um, we did 10% of all online sales to the National Restaurant Relief Association, our National Restaurant Association um, Employee Relief Fund um, from all the way from April through June and uh, raised over $100,000 for that charity that goes directly to support on-premise workers affected by the crisis. Um, so it was a combination of a lot of pivots, being super transparent with our team, but then trying to help pockets of the industry that were disproportionately affected as well. And I know you're, you guys are in the process of opening a new facility in San Diego, right? And so has that been uh, affected at all by this? We've been super lucky on timing on that, where uh, we closed just a couple days before uh, I think it was March 9th, we closed on the facility. And um, had it been later, who knows if the legal would have gotten done. Um, and then we had a high degree of confidence that that would close. So we had ordered um, our canning line and hired multiple teammates for that facility already for a March 1st start date. So we had some of our teammates went west before COVID hit. And then we had some new teammates starting as well. And so we actually launched, because there were so few distractions out there, ironically, uh, we ended up getting that facility off the ground two weeks earlier than expected. So we've been brewing since May 1st and shipping beer since uh, before June out of there. Wow. And so is the idea with the multiple facilities that both will, will produce the same beers, or are you going to specialize in one or, a, or, or another, depending on uh, which facility? Yeah, definitely making sure to hit our local market with all our beers um, so that beer is made pretty locally. Um, the nice thing is we can definitely scale more out West. Uh, it's obviously a much bigger facility and capacity on the East coast had been our biggest issue. Um, we are kind of turning Connecticut into an R and D lab also, and it's going to be some really fun stuff and can really let our brewers stretch their legs in both facilities. Now that uh, that capacity constraints been lifted a little bit. Cool. So I have a, a, this is kind of a more difficult question, or I think could be a more difficult question to answer just in terms of uh, specifics or, or details. But, you know, one of the things that we, that was talked about a lot in, in the industry and in the media um, at sort of the outset of quarantine and, and social distancing and staying at home and all that was, wow, people are drinking a lot more, right? You know, everyone is stocking up, everyone is home all day with nothing to do. And I can certainly understand how that dynamic um, played out and and played out for a lot of people because you know the 
the sort of uh, intoxicating effect of alcohol is uh, appealing when the world is kind of going to shit around you. Um, but but obviously that's not necessarily what people are looking for with athletic brewing. Did you get a similar though kind of vibe of people who are like, you know what, I, I need to have more beer on hand. Uh, I need to stock up or, or did that sort of not translate into your specific product? I, I was definitely worried about similar when the crisis started um, and the world's a stressful place. And I mean, people need to blow off stress and like social situations and drinking alcohol are definitely part of that. Um, or just socializing and sharing and communicating with family. But we have actually found that people are so in the beginning, people definitely drank more. And I think I think that was pretty short-lived. I think people got pretty sick of waking up in the same spot every day with a hangover. Um, and I think that really turned on its head. Um, I know I saw in a Harris poll survey that said 28% or people are drinking 20, like 28% of adults are actively reducing consumption during COVID. Um, I saw a Bloomberg article yesterday that was talking about the declining alcohol consumption during the COVID crisis. And so I, I think people really, after initially maybe eating and drinking a bit more, got sick of not feeling good. And people really started to get outside. Like, I think that's been a silver lining during COVID is people really getting out in their neighborhoods and beyond for exercise. And I think a lot of people have gotten healthier during COVID, too. And I think we go hand in hand with that. Um but also, if if people are spending a lot of time at home with their families, um, that's like one of our key demographics is young parents and millennials um, who just like to be with their families or significant others and socialize, but feel good and be mindful while doing so. I mean, some of us like to do that while also drinking, but I understand sometimes. Sometimes that's not an option for sure. <laughs> yeah. I have a two. I have a two year old, so you know sometimes. Sometimes the uh, yeah, sometimes the hangover is a real problem for sure. Um, I want I had a, a couple more questions for you, Bill. Um, the first is you know kind of uh, piggybacking on this topic about people kind of looking for more uh, I don't know how to say this more kind of um, a, a, a lifestyle that incorporates craft beer but also doesn't necessarily involve a lot of alcohol. Are you getting the the sense that for the for the you know going forward, um, again, hard to say too much about the future right now, that um, the the sort of alcohol-free lifestyle is something that you still see a lot of growth in? For sure. And I don't think it's going to come from anywhere that's cannibalizing craft beer. And that's never our goal. Um, like craft beer is incredible. And one of our biggest goals is to introduce more people to that world. Um, and the beer world is incredible at reaching Friday and Saturday night occasions and like really specific hours of the day and days of the week. We think there's another 80% of the week of beer occasions to unlock out there. And this could be your weeknight beer. This could be your day drinking beer. It could be your beer with your family or kids or anything. And um, so I, I do think it's going to grow for a long time to come, but it's going to be from just like, occasions that multiply throughout the week as soon as people get over the i think it's a stigma and quality problem and once people get past those and realize they're great tasting healthy options out there that border on functional they're gonna drink them in a lot more occasions um and so i don't think that beerness those 
I don't think that share necessarily comes from craft beer. I think it comes from more boring macro options, or I think it comes from like sodas and stuff like that too. Like people don't like they're health wise and occasion wise, like sodas do a ton of sales in these, in this country, but really don't pair well with food and don't fill a health void. So I think there's a lot of share to steal from different categories outside of beer and bring them into the beer world. Gotcha. Uh, speaking of outside the beer world, I, again, I understand totally that, uh, the process is proprietary, but is it, uh, something that could be applied to other alcoholic beverages or is it really beer specific? Um, I'm just curious. We've definitely messed around with some things and I mean, there's definitely white spaces all around, but John and I have a lot of thoughts on everything from wine to spirits and stuff, but we're really focused on the core for sure. Gotcha. I would say, so like beer is something that people have been drinking for thousands of years and it signifies like relaxing social family and stuff like that. I think wine and spirits have a great on-premise usage. I do think de-alkalized wine and spirits might struggle with the off-premise use occasion, um, except for like private party homes, I would say. Yeah, I, can, I think I could see that with spirits for sure. Um, although it's interesting to see, you know, I think I think you you have noticed and noted that for a lot of adults, they want to have something to drink with uh, with their meal. And as you become an adult, the the things that you want to have are, you know, if you're interested in more than water or sparkling water or something like that, then you kind of you find yourself in some kind of relatively narrow corridors if it's not alcoholic. So, so the opportunity to have uh, a, a quality wine that doesn't have alcohol or a cocktail, uh, I think there's some interest in that. But again, I, I agree that I think beer maybe has uh, is easier to kind of. Um, convey that in part because maybe it's easier to convince someone to give the beer a try at, you know, a sort of standard beer price than it is maybe with a bottle of wine or a bottle of spirits, which just necessarily have a higher price tag and thus require a little more kind of uh, <clears throat> willingness to jump in with both feet for someone who's picking them up for the first time. Um, I have one last question for you, um, which is kind of a, uh, it's about what, what we sort of see going forward, I guess. You mentioned that one of the big challenges that you've that that has hit the industry, and we're all aware of this, is, is on premise. But it's also you mentioned distribution, and I think that's something we haven't talked about as much um, on this podcast. And so I just was wondering, you know, how how are you from the side of a producer viewing what's going on with um, distribution in the country, and and what can people do um, if they're interested in trying to kind of help keep those businesses afloat because they're vital parts of ensuring that we all actually have stuff to drink. Um, yeah, what what, do you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, and it's it it took me getting into the beer industry to realize just how impressive beer distributors are. Um so many like I've worked with so many of our distribution partners and we've identified some amazing partners and built great businesses in different states with them. Um but riding with them, riding with someone who's been in the market for 10 or 15 years and the level of relationships they have, it immediately gives you a voice at retail that you never that I never had on my own, like walking in with hand bottled samples or anything. And their scale and logistics are so impressive in their relationships um, and just their partnership and advice too. like their 30,000 foot view. Uh, we've been really fortunate to have some great partners who believed in us right from the start. Um, 
I don't know where we'd be without star distributors in Connecticut believing with us, in us from day one um, and helping us grow. Um, but yeah, it's uh, the distribution business. Definitely, um, we're super thankful for the partners in there, but like different channels of it are definitely hurting in these times too. So we've been offering any way we can and just trying to be super creative. Awesome. And that kind of goes for anything from like, creative ways to reach their accounts so that they don't have to go there and put themselves at risk in person to try to pitch our products. Or we've offered to do like cleanups and like help their accounts get back open. And it's just kind of about listening to their ideas and throwing out some of our own ideas and horsepower ourselves. Well, Bill, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. I'm really uh, su- think super interested in what you guys are doing. I think there's, um, you know, there's a real, uh, need in this in in the modern sort of drinks landscape for interesting, delicious options that are low or non-alcoholic, and I think there's there's obviously a lot of interest in that. Um, and I'm glad uh, I'm glad that you guys are are out there trying to fill it. So again, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate you jumping on with us um, here on the podcast. Cool. Thank you so much for having us on, Zach. I really appreciate it, and everything VinePair does for the industry. It's such a great information source. Um, so. Thank you so much for giving us a voice. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and hosted by Zach Jabal, Eric Ducey, and me, Adam Teeter. Our engineer is Nick Patry and Keith Beavers. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the VinePair team for their support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again right here next week.